Good morning, Trinity Green Trails. It is good to see you all. It's been a while since I've been over here. So uh, what a delight and a joy it is to be with you, especially as we are wrapping up this series that we are calling The Four Witnesses, in which we're looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of the four Gospels. And the reason why uh, we have four Gospels is because Jesus' life is too rich and deep to capture with any one account. If we just had one biography of his life, it'd be like looking at his life in a black and white film. But when we have four, it's like looking at his life through ultra 4K high definition. Okay? We wanna, and, and what's beautiful is that each one of the gospel writers, although recounting what actually happened in Jesus' life, recounts it in such a way that it illuminates in greater detail who he is and why he matters. And so I think it's only right that before we dive into the fourth gospel, uh, together we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together as your people in this place that we might come to know you. And we pray that as we look at you through the eyes of John, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and open hearts to receive all that you desire to share with us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, a couple months ago, I came across an article in the New York Times that was entitled, Can We Learn Anything from Horses? Now, I expected that this article would be like some sort of scientific article, right? You know, talking about how scientists studying the lives and the social patterns of horses now have greater understanding of the animal kingdom and mammals and so on and so forth. But what I found was a very, very different kind of article. What the article was about was about how uh, if you're looking for meaning in life, if you're looking for purpose, you need only go to a ranch in New Mexico where for the low, low price of $1,000, you can stare at a horse for two hours. And I'm not kidding. That's exactly what, what this ranch is all about. It's, it's kind of like a life coaching experience where you pay 1000 bucks, you get to stare at a horse for two hours, you don't get to ride the horse Okay, you don't get to groom the horse. You might get to touch the horse if the horse comes close enough and lets you touch it. But otherwise, if the horse doesn't want to have anything to do with you, that's okay. There's a life lesson to be learned there. Now, we're sitting here like listening to this and we're kind of laughing and chuckling, right? Uh, because it is, it is kind of goofy, but think about this for a second. The clientele of this, uh, of, of this particular ranch includes Jeff Bezos, Bette Midler, and the executives of companies like Microsoft and North Face. These are people who, when you compare them to everybody sitting in this room, have achieved far more than the rest of us in their professional careers and in their lives. They have everything that the American dream would tell us we need in order to be fulfilled. They have the best jobs, they make the most money, they live in the nicest houses, in the best neighborhoods where they can send their kids to the very, very best schools. They have it all. And yet, 
They are willing to shell out a thousand bucks to go stare at a horse for two hours with the promise that this will, and this is from the website, literally change your brain to be wired toward presence, attunement, and wisdom, creating the life you really deserve, mastering nonverbal skills, sensing emergent futures, and much more. Okay, we should hear that as a cautionary tale of what happens when we look for meaning in places that don't provide it. Specifically of what happens when we think we will find purpose and fulfillment and meaning in things like good jobs, nice houses, better neighborhoods, and awesome schools for our children. Because if that's where you think you're going to ultimately be fulfilled, you could spend two hours staring at horses. And that's why we so desperately need uh, the, the words that, that we're going to be looking at this morning because, because what this article puts its finger on is something that actually Alexis de Tocqueville wrote all the way back in the early 1800s. This is what he said about our society. He said, In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. And it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow, and I thought them serious and almost sad in their pleasures. It is strange to see with what feverish ardor the Americans pursue their own welfare, and to watch the vague dread that constantly torments them, lest they should not have chosen the shortest path which may lead to it. A native of the United States clings to this world's goods as if he were certain never to die, and he is so hasty and grasping at all within his reach that one would suppose he was constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy them. He clutches everything, holds fast to nothing, but soon loosens his grip to pursue fresh gratifications. I feel like that could have been written yesterday. Because what de Tocqueville's putting his finger on and what the Gospel of John and the writer John is putting his finger on is the reality that we as human beings long for something more than material pleasures can provide. We long for something more than what our world promises but can't deliver on. Which is why this series is so important and why our gospel writer for this morning is so vital. Because what he wants to show us is where true meaning, where real life is found. Our writer is the writer John. And one of the things that we learn about John is that John, first and foremost, was a very close friend of Jesus. He not only was one of the twelve, he was actually a part of the inner circle among Jesus' twelve, along with Peter and James, which meant that he spent far more time with Jesus than anybody else, having conversations that nobody else had. And by all accounts, he wrote his gospel last. This was the last one written, and it's very different from the other three gospels because he knows that you've already read those. He says, I want to give you a different perspective on who Jesus is. Which is why his gospel starts in, in a, a really interesting way. He begins with the following words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, what John wants us to understand at the very outset is that everything that we see has been made by God. Absolutely everything. Furthermore, it's from him that we receive true life. 
And so if we're looking to the created things rather than the, created, uh, rather than the creator, we're kind of missing it. We're missing the life that he offers to us. And yet it's in him that we find our ultimate purpose. But then he goes on and he says this, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet for all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, he's saying that even though God has come to give us life and light, we're constantly looking for it in other places. We're constantly groping around in the darkness looking for that which only he can provide. Which is why John says the next thing that he says, which is so shocking. He says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, this was shocking in the first century. It was shocking both to pagans and to Jews. The reason why is because pagans believed that the divine was so other, it didn't want to have anything to do with our messy physical world. Likewise, the Jews believed that God was so high and holy, there was no way that we could ever approach him in all of our imperfection and brokenness. And what John says is that God, despite everyone's expectations, entered into our world to rescue us. More than that, he became one of us in order to lead us to the life which truly lasts. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John says, if you are looking for meaning and purpose, if you're looking for real life, the only way you're going to find it is when you find it in Jesus. That's his claim. Which is why it shouldn't surprise us that the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John is the question, what do you want? You see, John the Baptist had come and he'd been baptizing and saying, hey, there's somebody who's coming after me who you're really waiting for. This is the one you've been longing for. And then when Jesus shows up, he says, there he is. That's the guy. That's the one you've been looking for. And so some of John's disciples, they leave John, they start following Jesus. And Jesus notices these two guys creeping on him and he turns around and he says, what do you want? But he's not saying, what do you want in kind of like an offensive, you know, standoffish way. The word that's being used here is the Greek word zeteo, which actually means What are you looking for? What do you long for? What do you desire? See, that question is at the heart of John's gospel, and and that's why it's the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth, is, is because John wants us to understand that in Jesus we find what we've always been looking for. We find what we've always desired. And this is further reaffirmed by the rest of the structure of John's gospel. Many scholars have noted that John's gospel is a gospel of sevens. Okay, there's sevens everywhere. Actually, in the very first chapter, we're introduced to seven titles for Jesus. He's he's called the Lamb of God, Rabbi, Son of God, the Son of Man, Messiah, the King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. See, these were all types of people that the people in Jesus' day were looking for. And what John is saying right off the bat is Jesus is the guy. He's the true teacher. 
He's the real king. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. And though he's a human, he's also divine. It's all these beautiful claims. And this gets further reaffirmed the further and further you get into the gospel where you encounter other sevens. Jesus has seven I am statements where he says things like, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. And then there are seven times when people ask him straight up, who are you? And he just responds with the sentence, I am. Using God's own title for himself from, from the book of Exodus, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And then there's these seven signs of Jesus, signs which reveal his glory, like turning water into wine or uh, healing the sick or feeding the 5,000 or raising Lazarus from the dead. So why seven? Well, the reason why is because in the Old Testament, seven was the number of fullness and completeness. That God made the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested from all of his labors and enjoyed the creation that he'd made. It's part of the reason that he made the seventh day holy and called it our Sabbath, our day of rest and restoration and enjoyment, a day when we are filled up by what he provides. And again, it's just John's way of saying all the fulfillment you long for is found in Jesus. And to help you see what he's talking about, I want us just to look at just the seven I am statements of Jesus. And to see how these, these illuminate and help us understand who he is and why he matters. So let's go ahead and dive in. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Now the reason why uh, this is so important for us is because we live in a world where we are constantly fighting for our bread. Right? We're fighting for our daily bread. we got to get the best jobs with the highest paying career so that we can have the best house and live in the nicest neighborhoods and send our kids to the very, very best schools. The bread is ours, but we got to work for it. And so we uh, send, uh, spend, uh, spend time spinning our wheels, spinning our wheels, and we buy into the belief that bread, our daily bread, what we need for our very lives is totally and 100% dependent on us and our work. But when Jesus comes and he says, but I, I am the bread of life. He's making the claim that says, ultimately, the one who provides for you is not you, it's me. And the reason wrestling with this truth is so important is because all the other places we look to to provide our bread are temporary. Think about it. Jobs can be lost. Homes can be repossessed. Neighborhoods change. Stock markets crash and you lose your retirement. And if we're looking to those places, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment and failure. But what Jesus says when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying that even when you find yourself in desert places and you're afraid that you don't know where what you need is coming, where it's going to come from tomorrow, he says, I'm the one who will provide for you. He's not a God who confuses our needs with our wants. He doesn't say, I'm just going to give you what you want. He says, I'll give you what you need in the moment that you need it. I will provide you with exactly what you require to meet a new day. He says, I am your bread. I am the one who provides for you. He goes on and he says, I am the light of the world, which is very important because we live in a world where we're all, all kind of groping around in the darkness trying to figure out what our purpose is right? I was in a Barnes and Noble on Friday. And one of the things that's interesting, it's, it's no longer called the self-help section anymore. It's called self-transformation. 
And actually, this section is bigger than religion and philosophy combined now at Barnes & Noble. Why is that? It's because we as people, we're longing for our purpose. We want to know what our next step toward our destiny should be. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm the light of the world who shows you what your next step should be. Because all those other promises that the world gives, I mean, uh, let, let's think about it just for a second. How many of us truly knows what we're designed for? I mean, if it were that simple, we would all find our dream job the moment we graduate from college. And yet we don't. And it's because we, we actually don't know the way. We're just constantly groping around in the dark, hoping that something sticks. But Jesus says, I will direct you exactly where you need to go because I am the one who made the stars in the heavens. And just as I named the lights in the sky, I have numbered the hairs on your head. I made you. I know who you are. I know what you're designed for. And if you're looking for direction and purpose, if you're looking for light that will last when all other lights go out, you need only look to me. I am your light in dark places, and I will never, ever fade. Jesus then goes on and says, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And this is important for us because we live in a world where we're constantly looking for security, right? And we want security to come from the systems and the leaders around us, correct? That's where we look to, right? And it's why it's like every uh, election cycle, right? All the next administration is going to be better. Next administration is going to be better. Next administration is going to be better. Guys, I'm not that old, and I'm going to tell you, that doesn't work out. I've seen enough of those elections. It doesn't work out. Because every system, every party, and every party platform and agenda is flawed and will break. Every governmental system, doesn't matter if it's a, democ a democracy or a monarchy, is going to let you down. Every leader will fail you. Because we're human. But what Jesus says, he says, if you're looking for security and safety in those leaders and in those places and plans, you're going to be disappointed. And you're just going to fall back into anger, fear, and despair. We see it, right? We see it in the news headlines all the time. And yet we still continue to stubbornly insist that our guy is the better guy. Really? Unless we're talking about Jesus... I got a newsflash for you. Your guy ain't that much better. No, what Jesus says is he says, you need a better leader, you need me. Because I am the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I am the leader who will never fail you. I am the one who when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil for I will be with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. That even in the presence of your enemies, I will set a table before you and your cup will run over. I will lead you in green pastures. I will make you lie down beside still waters. I will restore your soul. That's his promise. And everywhere that he went, in John's gospel, he found lost sheep and he defended them. He fed them and healed them and built them up. And he says, that is who I am for you. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And in a world where we work and we work and we work, only to see our, our accomplishments fade away the next day, Jesus says, if you're looking for fruitfulness, you need only look to me. In a world where we go on vacations, thinking that that's going to be where we find true rest, only to come home and realize we need a vacation from our vacation, Jesus says, I'm the one that you can rest in, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. 
fruit that will last, the fruit of my kingdom. He says, and the strange thing is, is when you abide in me, when you rest in me, that's when I bear my best fruit in you. That's when I give you my life. I realign your priorities. I prune out what is unhealthy. And I help rededicate you to the work of my kingdom, a kingdom which has no end. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Which many people listen, see, hear that statement and they think that that's an exclusivist statement, don't they? They're like, oh, that's so, you know, with all these other religions out there, I mean, that's just so narrow and stuff like that. But think about this for a second. In a world where we have infinite religious options, how do we know who God really is unless he reveals himself to us? If God really was an exclusivist, what he would basically say is, I'm not going to tell you anything about myself, you just go and figure it out on your own. And he would get the best and the brightest, the smartest with the most resources to figure it out every time while the rest of us are left behind. But that's not what he says. He says, I want to make myself known to you. Jesus actually said this on the night that he was betrayed. He says, I'm going to my father and you guys know the way. And they're like, we don't know the way. We don't know the father. And Jesus looks right at them and he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What he's saying is he's saying, you don't need to second guess who God is or what he feels about you. You need only look to me. And that's open to everybody. I came here so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt who I am and the love that I have for you. And last but not least, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is probably the most important. Because there will come a day when we will all face disease and sickness and ultimately death. And the answer isn't just pray harder and hope it goes away. Because the reality is that sometimes it doesn't. And the question then becomes, where do we find our true hope? And the answer in Jesus is, you find it in me, for I have overcome death itself. And I will come again and I will make everything new. I will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more crying or mourning or pain anymore, for the old order of things will have passed away. And behold, the new will come. Jesus is offering us a hope that outlasts death itself. He says, and one day I'm going to make everything new in this broken, dark world. I will refashion and my light will radiate from one end of the globe to the other. And there will be no more pain or crying or death or separations, for there will only be life with me. And if you want to know if it's true, know that it, you can believe it because I rose again from the dead. In time and in history, he walked out of his own tomb and he said, and just like I did that, when I come again, so you will too. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, in Jesus, we have everything we could possibly long for. And so the question from John is the question to us, what do you want? What are you looking for? What do you desire? Because in Jesus, you have it. You don't have to clean yourself up to get it. He comes to you. He makes his dwelling with you so that you might know that you have grace upon grace. That's why these four witnesses are so important. Because they show us that in Jesus, every promise of God finds its yes. That in Jesus, we have a, ki a better king of a greater kingdom which has no end. 
that we have seen his glory, that eyewitnesses bear testimony to the fact that he came in time and space and so that we can have certainty of what we hope for because in him is life and light, the life that we've always longed for. I think that's the reason John ends his gospel with these words. He says, look, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded here, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, real life in his name. And so it's with that in mind, I want to invite you to pray. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in you we have everything that we could possibly long for. And we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we've gone searching for it in places that don't satisfy, that we'd rather look at horses than follow you. And yet in your mercy, you, our good shepherd, pursued us. You laid down your life for us. You rose again from the dead and you have promised that those who put their hope in you will rise again to new life. Lord, that's our hope. And we ask that that would be the bread that sustains us now and forever. Amen.